0: Wherever there are shadows, there are
1: people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Thanks for listening. You can follow Bleeding Daylight and connect to our social media channels by following the links at bleedingdaylight.net. Please share Bleeding Daylight episodes and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, I'm chatting with a fellow podcaster and talking about some of the things he faced in his early life. It's a great conversation. Jerry Dugan spent his childhood moving not only from state to state, but from country to country. But it wasn't an idyllic life. He grew up with massive expectations hanging over his head and issues within his family made growing up a very rocky road. These days, he hosts a podcast named Beyond the Rut, and I'm so pleased that he's joining us on Bleeding Daylight. Jerry, thank you so much for your time. Glad to be here, Rodney. A lot of what forms your story really begins before you were even born. Tell me about your parents and how they met. Ah, so my dad
0: was a uh, soldier in the U.S. Army, joined from California, United States of America, and got himself stationed to a place called Thailand during the Vietnam War. And while he was stationed there, uh, his platoon sergeant had, well, I guess, taken soldiers under his wing who were not there with family, which were most of the soldiers over there. That platoon sergeant turned out to uh, be a guy who would later become my uncle, uh, one of my uncles. and And that's because his wife, she just said, Dugan, you, you need somebody who's going to take care of you and a good woman. I'm going to introduce you to somebody and basically introduced my dad to the woman who would become my mom uh, for my dad. Love at first sight. I'm going to marry this woman. We're going to live happily ever after. And, you know, spoke to uh, the, the lady who'd become my grandmother and said, I'd, I'd love to marry your daughter. And uh, the, the grandma said, great. Uh, this is what it'll cost. You know, the dowry. Uh, so my dad paid the dowry and uh, they got married couple years after that, I was born 76. So that's how they met. It turns out from my mom's perspective, uh, she was already seeing somebody, her meddling sister made an introduction. And before my mom knew it, she was uh, now to be married to my dad. Of course, this is a story that came forward after my parents divorced when I was 11. And I don't think I even heard that story until I was, gosh, I want to say my mid to late twenties. My mom always tried to soften that story because you know, it's just what she knew for the longest time.
1: So it, it's starting off on a fairly rocky premise. I mean, not for your dad, because he thought that this is love at first sight. He thought everything's going well, but but your mum had other ideas. Were there happy years in the early, early years? For me, it was it was always happy until I realized it wasn't. <laughs> a
0: phrase my mom had used was she had learned to love him. Uh, and that was something she had said to me in one of our conversations in, in my late twenties, because I had asked her, I was like, did, did you ever love my dad or, you know, how did, how did that feel for you? And she said, to me, you know, it was a shock for her at first, uh, it wasn't exactly what she wanted, but she learned to love him. And I thought, wow, that, I don't think that's a normal phrase. My American friends say about their parents. It, it sounds horrible. I mean, you know, if we're listening from a Western perspective, I, I, I guess from an Eastern perspective probably sounds horrible uh, or just from a modern perspective, it sounds horrible, but it was, that was the way it was for them uh, then. And yeah, just not what she wanted in life. You know, when, when you talk to my mom, uh, she had dreams of uh, going to university and, you know, just being an independent woman and, and living out her dreams and having a career, those kinds of things. Uh, but those, just weren't given to her, they weren't presented to her. Her parents stopped paying for her education after middle school, so she was on her own after that uh, in terms of education and finds herself in a marriage that she didn't want so it's yeah, you know from her this is probably the first time I've told this story specifically from my mom's perspective. I never really thought of it that way, because uh, you know, I just think about the impact it had on my brother and I when they did get divorced, and you know, just the devastation it had on my dad, he actually you know, had become suicidal uh, because of that that separation. And, and so that just kind of created a whole world of trauma for my brother and I, we were gosh, nine years old and 11 years old. That was the 11 year old. My brother was nine for my mom though. You know, that, that separation took some courage because she just always had that insecurity that, you know, what's to stop my dad from just ditching her. And here's a chance for her to preemptively leave. And so she did. And it's weird. Like as I say this, it, it sounds like my dad was abusive, but he really wasn't. He's a very gentle guy. He was a military policeman, and he was the guy who got to play good cop because there was no way he could play bad cop. He just he doesn't have it in him to be bad cop.
1: Of course, we then fast forward. You, you've told a little bit of your parents' story, but we we drop you into the scenario as well. What was it like for you? Because you're you're growing up with a, a range of cultures. As I mentioned, you've moved from country to country, so you're experiencing different culture, but essentially you've got this American culture and this Thai culture mixed in and having to bring that to bear in whatever country you're living in at the time.
0: Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, on the American culture side, my dad was a very awkward person socially. So I, I never quite got acculturated to my own culture in a sense, if, you're, if we're talking about the United States. Yeah, it, it left me open to make lots of faux pas because my mom's raising me And what she thinks is American culture, but really it's just her take on it. Uh, So there's high expectations to study well, to get the highest grades in school, to achieve. And at the same time, it's costing some friendships in terms of why does Jerry always have to have the highest grade in the class? He's such a jerk. He's so mean. He rubs it in our face, those kinds of things. Because, you know, my mom would do the, the stereotypical Asian parent thing and brag about my achievements to everybody else. So then that created some animosity there. Uh, and then on my dad's side, you know, he, he is American, but he's different. <laughs> and I, I miss a lot of social cues. Uh, so over time, I've had to learn a lot of service recovery in a sense when it comes to relationships and recognizing when I've put my foot in my mouth and not so much backpedal, but be ready to be humble and, and make an apology and simply own that I didn't understand the situation.
1: It's an interesting place that you find yourself. I'm wondering, in those early years, you've got the, the the other kids in the class who are wondering, why does this Dugan kid always have to be the best? And, and you're experiencing that. Did that mean that it was difficult to find friends? Was, was there any form of racism pointed at you because of that?
0: From my friends at school, not so much, especially when it comes to racism. Uh, I grew up in military communities, mostly. So uh, that's kind of the beauty of being a biracial child, growing up in a military community, is that a lot of kids in military communities are biracial children. It just is normal for us, you know. It's, it's normal for someone to be half white, half something not white, and have a lot of friends who are just of a variety of ethnicities. You know, you have black friends, Asian friends, uh, white friends, um, blend of all the above, Native American friends, and. Being in a biracial family, growing up in a military community did give me some benefit uh, because you you just learn to accept that type of diversity. Uh, But then, you know, we also have the achievement side. I don't know if you you could say I had a hard time making friends, but I definitely had a hard time uh, maybe having close friends. (laughs) Uh, You know, there's always that element of animosity. Uh, The odd thing, though, is I didn't really face racism or animosity from my friends at school because again, growing up in military communities where I really encountered uh, racism and, you know, animosity and, you know, oh, it must be nice to be the smart guy, that type of response. I actually got that from my own extended family. So my cousins were the ones who typically would lash out and my cousin's friends. So they would, you know, see me once every week or so when I was living in the United States. They were the ones that call me, you know, racial slurs, like, gook and half, pro, uh, half breed, uh, boat person, uh, chink, jap, nip, and like all the racial slurs you can come up with towards somebody who's Asian. And they would do that. They would even do their like whole slant eye thing, you know, as they walk by me and say they were speaking my language and what they were saying was ching, chong, ching. And you're like, really? Yeah. You know, Cause y- y'all realize I was born in Oklahoma. Right. And you know, my dad is like white, just like you. And, my last name's Dugan and I talk just like you. My eyes aren't even slanted and this is what you think it means to be Asian.
1: Help me understand the sorts of expectations that your mum had on you because you said she wanted you to perform well. I get the feeling that it goes beyond that. It wasn't just perform well and come home with good grades. It was, you need to be exceptional.
0: Yes. And I think a lot of that One driven by culture, you know, there there is that stereotype among uh, different Asian cultures that you get a school, you get great grades and you get a great job and you you fit in and and that's that's life. So there's that. But then I I think I did say earlier that, you know, my mom mom had dreams and aspirations of going off to college and, and having a career of her own. And that was, in a sense, taken from her. So I was kind of her chance to live that life for her. And so there was this high expectation uh because it wasn't an expectation she put on her on my brother as much uh but at least with me uh, that I had to be the guy that broke out of the Dugan family mold. I had to be the guy that was the first to go to college. I had to be the guy that was not just the first to go to college, I had to be the best in class. It was just very important to her that I had that drive that I, I didn't accept anything less than perfect it was just a big deal to her. And for the longest time, I, I just didn't understand why was it not good enough that I had the highest grade in the class? You know, if I had got 98%, why was her response always, where were the other two points? Um, and that was like a serious, like I joke about it. Uh, and cause my family knows the story. And, uh, and so when my kids came home with like a 95, I'm like, where are the other five points? And they would just look at me like, dad, I'm like, I'm just kidding you guys. That, that's a great job. You know, keep it up. But for her, it was just, it meant so much more to her that I had to have perfect scores. I had to have perfect attendance. Her sense of worth as a mother was based on my perfection. And if I, if I did great and I got 100% or higher, it was something she could brag about. And if I got anything less than that, it was I didn't try hard enough. You know, you need to go back you need to go back to the drawing board. You need to go back to your room and study. You need to, you know, not be in Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts anymore. But it was normal for me. I think it was not until like some of my friends started to catch on. This was happening. They're like, Really? Your mom's making you study? It's like Saturday. I'm like, Yeah, well, you know, that that quiz we had the other day, I got a ninety-eight. And they're like, What? I got like a 70. And I get to play outside. I'm like, well, my mom just says that's because you're a lazy American. And then, okay, you know, of course, that doesn't fly well with your friends. So, <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I guess you, there's just some things your parents wish you don't repeat. And that was probably some of that. So, uh, yeah, it was just it seemed like if uh, I wanted to be my mom's good graces, I had to have perfect scores in school. And if I didn't do that, I was not in her good graces. So, yeah. That, that was the perception I had, you know, as a seven or eight-year-old boy growing up.
1: You say that you weren't in her good graces, but how did you, as that young boy, actually perceive it? Did you perceive that this was just a mum with a really high expectation and I'd better follow it? Or, or did you see that as a kind of conditional love, that I've got to do this to, to earn mum's love?
0: For me, it was definitely uh, a, that conditional type of love. There were times, and this goes back even further, like I was like five. <laughs> so we're talking about young childhood. But I do remember that uh, when I was about five, you know, my parents would go to like a Kmart or, you know, another type of uh, discount store and they would buy me books because I had to read. Uh, they would buy me workbooks so I could practice math. I just remember my mom being frustrated one time. We were doing a math booklet. It was a uh, subtraction problems and I wasn't getting it. You know, I I was killing it on the addition. I didn't understand why when you you take away one of the lines in the plus symbol, the rules change. And I didn't like that. And, you know, it was just a hard concept to get. My mom, you know, English, not being her first language was frustrated because she couldn't communicate to me what was being said in these math problems. Yeah, I wound up getting spanked that day. I remember thinking to myself, that's not fair. Not not that's not fair. Like she spanked me. But I didn't get a chance to really think this through and, and to work on this, but I'll show her. I'll, I'll work on this whole book. I kind of self taught myself subtraction of all things. And I'm, I'm kind of proud. I'm like, you know, of course five years old. I mean, yeah, I, I worked through this entire workbook of like subtraction problems taught, you know, learned how to do it. And it uh, turns out I did it right. And I presented that to my mom all proud, like, Hey, mom, look, I, I figured it out. And she was just livid, uh, very upset, not so much that i had gone out and you know learned math on my own uh but she was livid because uh i didn't have her permission to do this so there was that element of perfection as well i had written in the entire book it was just like i had done this without her without her supervision and so she was upset about that and and on top of that like we have to go out now and get another workbook so that's another trip and so it was like even if you're right you're wrong The reason why I did that workbook, though, was because I wanted my mom to love me, you know, at five years old. Uh, And, you know, even when I did, it was still wrong. So it was like not knowing what is the thing that'll make her, you know, be proud and say, I love you. And yeah, I just didn't understand that for the longest time.
1: Sounds like even as that very young child, you're learning this behavior of of walking on eggshells and and trying to, to please mom. I'm wanting to fast forward now, because you've mentioned that at the age of 11 for you and nine for your brother, that your parents divorced, and that must have been fairly traumatic. And obviously, these things don't just come out of the blue. So there there must have been a lot of tension in the family, even leading up to that. Tell me about that time. I think I was definitely oblivious. So a lot of what I learned about my parents'
0: relationship, I learned after the fact, so my dad was still in the army at the time, uh, 11 years old. We're stationed in this little tiny place called Fort Hunter Leggett. Now, geographically, it's a large area, but population-wise, very, very low population. And my dad gets orders to go to Germany. And you know the army being the army made a mistake. They didn't include his family in the orders to go to Germany. So he had to go ahead of us to try to secure housing, get the orders changed so that we come with him. So while that's happening, there is an a, a helicopter pilot who is stationed at Fort Hunter Liggett on temporary duty. And he is among his other friends and they just kind of have this bet who can kind of hook up with that lady there behind the bar. So my mom was uh, working at a place called the Hacienda. It was like the officer's club. And these chief warrant officers were like, yeah, let's make a bet. Let's see who can hook up with that lady. You know, that lady turned out to be married, turned out to be my mom. And they all went to work. They all made a bet, one month's paycheck. Uh, whoever wins gets, I think they like four or five people in the pool. That movie top gun had just come out. And I don't know if that was the, the full inspiration for their bet, but it was basically driven by a bet. They all made their approaches, but one in particular really went to town on just planting the seeds of doubt in my mom's mind. Like I'm, talking to you here, but what do you think your husband's doing in Germany? You know, this is what soldiers do. Soldiers do this all over the world. And this has always been the case as your husband never deployed before or got on temporary duty. And she said, no, he hasn't. And he said, well, this is what we all look forward to. And it's just something fun. We do. We're just friends. And it just kept planting those seeds in her mind that my dad was in Germany having an affair. So you should too. And for that point, it was just, you know, making her You know, feel loved, feel cherished, feel noticed. And she had fallen for it and started dating this guy. Uh, Approached my brother and I at one point and said, my brother and I are going to Germany with my dad when he gets his orders to, to, and I guess orders had come in. So my mom knew that uh, my dad was coming to get us. Uh, Well, his plan was to get all of us to go to Germany. And uh, my mom's letting us know that she's going to be staying behind. And work on our GED. And my brother just started crying. So my brother picked up on what was going on. Uh, me, I'm I'm kind of oblivious. But at the same time, there was like this sense of freedom. Like, ah, so I don't have to do homework on a Saturday anymore. And, you know, the, this striving for like perfect grades all the time is going to go away. And, you know, maybe I get to enjoy life a little bit more. So it was kind of selfish. I mean, again, I'm 11. Yeah, then my dad shows up in in country. And I find out there's a whole different world going on, a whole different family dynamic that I either shut off or just was so busy that I never noticed.
1: And it was a real spiral for your dad, wasn't it? How did he try and cope with losing the love of his life?
0: Almost like you would with any type of grief. There was, you know, the, the denial, the anger, uh, the the pleading, all those, other, all those stages. So he came in initially just to desperately try to convince my mom, hey, you know, Let's talk through this. Let's save our marriage. Come with me. There is no other woman. There are no women. Uh, I've always been loyal. So he he really worked hard to convince her of that. Uh, But he also confronted the chief warrant officer who had done all this because this is not something that's condoned in the military. It might be something that happens from time to time. And he also, you know, confronts that person's chain of command, like, hey, you know, how are you condoning this? I'm, I'm filing formal complaints. Uh, none of it really stuck. You know, they the, the worst that happened to that guy was a slap on my hand. Don't do it again. Don't see that woman anymore. Uh, and my mom, she dug her heels in. she said, no, I'm, I'm staying here. I'm, you know, starting this relationship with this guy and you're taking the boys with you. And from there, they, they would write letters back and forth. I would write letters to my mom, but, uh, and my brother didn't really write letters at all. He just kind of read the ones that my mom sent. But the letters I wrote with my mom and the conversations we had back and forth were way different than the ones that were happening between my dad and my mom. Uh, so the ones that I had with my mom were, you know, like, you know, I miss you. I love you, um, you know, do good in school, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. And I remember my letters I'm writing back and, and still like giving her updates on how I'm doing in school. So even though I wasn't under like her thumb every single day to, um, you know, live this life of perfection I'm still kind of reporting back to her how I'm doing but then with my dad it was like a roller coaster Uh, so the question was how did he cope with it Uh, for him like one day he'd get a letter saying you know maybe I made a mistake maybe we should talk and then the next day he'd get a letter no I I made a good choice Uh, you know I'm living a good life you know good luck Uh, and and so he was just all over the place uh, emotionally just a wreck felt like he didn't have anybody to go to or could talk with uh, even though he was seeing uh, a psychiatrist, I believe and uh, about depression and uh, he was even prescribed antidepressants, so he was being seen to some degree, but when it came to like how to cope with this loss, he wasn't really getting that support. And I remember uh, in Germany the very first night where maybe not the very first night, but our first meal together for sure. Uh, we're making sandwiches, ham salad sandwiches that we buy out the, out of the can at the store and uh, on good old American white bread that comes packaged in the plastic. And I just remember my brother shouting out to my dad, dad, stop. I look up and my dad's got a, a butcher knife to his chest and I'm like, what are you doing? And so I also say the same thing and I say, dad, Stop. And you know, my brother's crying, tears running down his face. My dad's crying, tears running down his face, and I'm in shock, wondering, you know, what am I looking at? Is this real? What is? What? How do you? How do you handle this? That's when my brother and I just went into like suicide prevention without, you know, knowing how to do suicide prevention. And this is before the days of internet, so there is no jump on the computer, jump on your phone, Google suicide prevention, suicide prevention hotline. Like we. Didn't have those resources. So we had to do things like hide all the knives. All right. Oh, now he's trying to stab himself with forks, hide all the forks. Okay. Now he's trying to overdose on his antidepressants. We don't know what that does, but uh, we need to hold onto those antidepressants and give him just enough to get through the day. Give him his dosages. Okay. Now he's thinking about maybe driving his car off the cliff. So we needed to like check up on him. We know when he leaves work, we got to call him as soon as we expect him to be in the office. Let him know we're calling him. And if he's not there to answer, we're going to ask around and draw a lot of attention because he wanted to keep this all under wraps. Like I guess a big thing in military culture is that you're fine when it comes to your mental health. And so even in the 1980s, this was, this was a thing. So the last thing he wanted was for his coworkers to realize he's got this mental health issue going on that he's battling depression. He's not doing a good job with it. And this goes on for a number of months. So we're in Germany. Mom's not there. We moved there like April, May. I'd say around July, June, July, he manages to close some doors, hang himself. And I'm the one who finds him hanging from my closet door from a lanyard that I somehow missed. So I'm kind of mad. Like, where did that come from? Turns out he had it tucked away with his uniform and, you I'm trying to lift him and I can't lift this guy because I'm 11. I probably weigh 85, 90 pounds And you know, here's my dad, you know, weighing almost two hundred pounds. In my eyes, he was double my height, you know, trying to pick him up and he's not budging and his face is turning purple. And I, I just see that lanyard digging deeper into his neck. And I remember screaming out, uh, please God, no, you know, don't take him. Don't let him die. You know, still trying to pick him up. And shortly after screaming that out though, the the lanyard snaps. And it breaks into two pieces. One piece stays up where he had had it wrapped around the, the closet. And my dad just drops to the floor, gives out a loud grunt. I panic. I run outside to go find my brother who's playing with our friends. My brother comes in and and my dad's starting to come too. So my brother, you know, loosened the lanyard from his neck. My dad was breathing. In in a sense, it was kind of my dad's wake up call. He he realized he was going too far. And, and uh, he did share that once he did, you know, let his weight take over. He kind of regretted it. And then he see it, he just saw, it. you know, that you know, my brother and I crying and just you know, scared but also mad at him, like how could you do this to us? Mom did this to us and you're taking it out on us. That's not fair. We need you. And of course, you know, we're said it the way like a 9-year-old and 11-year-old would say it. And my dad just again hugged us, said he was so sorry, he'll never do it again. And of course the the continued plea you know, please don't tell anybody this happened. The rope left a mark on his neck and there was no way he was going to be able to hide it. Uh, he's in the army. There's a dress code. So there's no wearing a scarf. You know, there's, <laughs> it just wasn't part of his uniform. Uh, so he went to work the next day and his boss said, hey, Sergeant Dugan, what's up with your neck? And my dad, you know, tried to give him some baloney about like cutting himself shaving or something. And yeah, the guy was like, I don't think that's what's going on. I'm going to make a phone call real quick. Stay right there. His boss, Sergeant First Class Moss, turns to his boss and says, hey, we need to get help for Sergeant Dugan. I think he he's gotten to, to suicidal. And so they enacted like a support reaction almost immediately. But to go even further, they were like, okay, we got to get him some inpatient help but we can't because he's got kids. So we got to put his kids in foster care and we got to find out some more stuff. We got to confirm he really is suicidal. So I remember Sergeant Moss calling us at home and I picked it up because I thought it was my dad. There's no caller ID. So you just pick up the phone and answer and it's Sergeant Moss. I'm thinking, "Uh Oh, we're in trouble. Sergeant Moss is onto us, Jimmy, but he asks us seriously. He's like, Hey, is your dad? Okay. And I said, yeah, he's fine. Why? Well, I I just talked to him and I noticed he's got this red mark across his neck. How did he get that? And um, so I answer and I tell him what happened, and he just immediately said, "Hey, we're gonna help. Okay, your dad's gonna be fine. We're gonna get help for him." And I remember wanting to break down and cry because this was like the first time somebody was actually helping us. It felt right. I felt safe. And within an hour. Sergeant Moss is in our apartment in Germany with my dad. We're packing bags. Uh, He's explaining to us things are going to be fine. Uh, He's reassuring my dad things are going to be fine. My dad is smiling. You you can see the relief in my dad's face. He's going to get help. The biggest fear that my brother and I I had was that we were going to be sent back to the states uh, with my mom, and for different reasons. For me, it was like, oh my gosh, I got to go back to my mom and and those expectations, and I don't know if I'm ready for that. Even though. Oddly enough, I'm also writing her and asking for her approval and, and uh you know, please look at me and my achievements. My brother didn't want to go back because my mom's, you know, basically living with the guy that she cheated on us with. So he doesn't want to go there because, you know, that guy's not going to take care of us. He doesn't care about us. He's the guy who broke up the family. You know, uh, he's got his own family. And, and these are things I didn't, I just didn't know or didn't think about. But uh, if he's willing to throw his own family out. He's going to throw us out. Uh, yeah, we wound up in foster care. First time I got to see what a wholesome family looks like, where the parents love each other. They're grounded in God. Uh, they pray at every meal. They, the kids don't fight. This blew my mind. My brother and I fight three, three, four times a day. And we're, we're being supported by this foster family uh, that goes against everything that you see in the movies about foster families in the United States. This family was very loving, treated us as family. Even when we did things that would probably frustrate them, they took a very patient approach to how they responded. They, w- they would respond, not react. So this was a glimpse into what could be.
1: And it sounds like you're suddenly given license to be a kid, something that you haven't had license to be for so long. You've had this enormous responsibility piled on your shoulders, and suddenly you get to be a kid. Was that freeing for you?
0: Yeah, it, it was, especially with that foster family. You uh, we – I didn't have to worry about being perfect. I didn't have to worry about, uh, you know, conditional love The they exhibited unconditional love. You know, they, you know, there was one point where I even fought one of their own children and I thought in my head, that's it. You know, my behavior is going to get me thrown out. You know, that's their child. And I just fought their child and, and their child didn't really put up much of a fight that I was a horrible kid to that child. I just remember that they were really good about focusing on the behavior being bad, that I myself am a good child. I myself am a good person. I myself have value. Now, this behavior you exhibited is not okay, and we need to talk about that. And it was probably the first time in my life my behavior was separated from my identity, uh, that we're we're not 100% defined by the things we have done. Our value and our our dignity is separate from the things that we do. But yeah, we got to play. Like as soon as that was all resolved, it was like, all right, cool, go play. And you know, things had been restored. So that was another thing. There was no this none of this cloud hanging over my head that you're always a bad kid because you fought this one time. Now you got to prove yourself forever more. It was just like once we resolved that issue, everything was restored. Go back into the fold. Be you. Have fun. I loved it.
1: Did you get to? Live family life again with your dad once he got the help that he needed?
0: Yes. Uh so he went through three-ish months, give or take a month, of some inpatient care with some military hospitals. So he was in Germany for a while at a hospital and then transferred to Walter Reed in the United States. Uh we came with him. Uh we stayed with an aunt and uncle of mine. In fact, the same aunt uh who connected my dad and my mom. So it was I it's that's kind of weird. Like my dad still keeps that relationship going. So he's close with that uncle, close with that aunt, uh, even though that aunt is the oldest sister to my mom. To this day, they still treat him as a brother, uh, That my dad that is. And my brother and I are still their nephews and still family. Uh, but yeah, we got reunited with my dad. We restationed back in California. Uh, by now, my mom had moved to Alabama where she was uh, basically building this life with the other guy. I mean, there's still healing to go on. My, my dad was still seeing some, a counselor on the, on an outpatient basis for a good year or so. After that was really just adjusting to this new life, this family of three, uh, my brother and I, my dad, there was a lot to learn actually. (laughs) Uh, You know, if we thought we didn't have much of a a structure before, it turns out we did have a lot of structure because of my mom. Now we've got no structure. Uh, We live with a guy who is just socially awkward, doesn't have a lot of social skills. So we kind of just stay to ourselves. We go to school, we come home, we just stay at home, maybe play outside a little bit with our friends. Um, and then we go up to my grandparents' house every weekend. So we have this little bit of reprieve, but then it's short lived because I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, where I did face racism and uh, being ostracized was by my extended family. And this was the time when that, when that happened. So, you know, I've got cousins picking on me. Uh, that's when they're calling me those racial slurs. Uh, that's when they're picking on me. And it turns out they're all going through divorce as well. Uh, the ones that are picking on me and the worst of them. Uh, and so I'm the smallest guy, the the outsider, the guy who's outside enough to be picked on. After that short reprieve, 12 years old to about 14, 15 years old, it's almost like I go right back into another hell. But now it's uh, not my dad suffering from depression and being suicidal. Now it's my own extended family bullying me every weekend and uh, and an uncle kind of leading it. And it it culminates with that uncle and I having a fight. I'm about 14 years old, kind of at the end of my rope as far as, uh, you know, putting up with this uncle, insulting us, picking on us. Uh, There was this dumb phrase he always used when he was frustrated with all the noise and he wanted to shut kids up. And he would just kind of show up in the living room of my grandparents' house and say, the word to the wise is sufficient. Everybody would just stop talking and get quiet out of fear that he was going to start hitting them with a belt or throw them around, choke them, whatever it was. Uh, But I remember just having this, like, fire in my chest, like, screw this guy, this grown man who picks on children. Um, Shame on him. So when he said that, the word to the wise is sufficient, I looked at him, and I just remember blurting out, like, taking this stand, what word? And he looked at me like, the word to the wise is sufficient. I'm like, that's great. But the problem is you have no words. You just come out and say the stupid phrase with no context whatsoever. What word are you talking about? What big boy words are you using? And uh, he didn't like that. He wound up uh, getting into my face and uh, we wound up fighting. So here I am fighting my 30 something year old uncle in the living room. Everybody's cheering on my uncle and just kind of being entertained by me getting my butt kicked by a grown man. Uh, my grandpa's even taken his side, like I need to respect, you know respect my elders, that kind of thing. And I'm just like when that was all done, I'm like, I'm done with this family. like this family is everything wrong with what family should be, you know, yeah, you know, the adults should be lifting their children up, growing them, preparing them for the world, and they don't do that they tear, they tear their kids down, they prepare them for a life of living on welfare, and have done a great job of convincing their kids that they'll never amount to anything great or do anything great with their lives. And that there's no point to it. That moment fighting my uncle, it was just that line in the sand where I was like that. I'm not going to be like this and whatever comes after me, as far as children, grandchildren, I want them on a different trajectory. And I remember hiding in my grandparents garage, uh, letting everybody think I ran away and my dad not present at this time because they sent him on an errand I remember him coming home after a couple hours and he's just like, where's my son? And they're like, they're trying to give him this story of like how, you know, Jerry got out of line. He needed to be reminded of his place in this family and he just got unruly and we don't know where he is right now. And I just remember faintly hearing my dad because you know I'm tucked away in the garage. So this is kind of muffled, but now it's a line in the sand for him. I'd been telling him this is happening. He wasn't really quite believing it, but now he's seeing it with his own eyes. And yeah, he, he took a stand for me, backed me up and said, that's my son. He's an extension of me. You know, how dare you guys not love me by not loving my son. And you know, what? as far as I'm concerned, if he doesn't want to come down here anymore, he doesn't have to. And if he doesn't think your family for him, I support him in that. Yeah. Shortly after that, he realized I was in the garage and we packed up. He took me back home to Monterey, California, and I didn't go to my grandparents' house for a couple of years.
1: You still learn from your environment, and you decide to take on uh, a career once you you finish school, and you take on a career that goes along the same lines as what you've learned. Tell me about that.
0: Yeah. Um, I wish I had known from the start, this is the career I was going to really enjoy doing. Uh, So, to this day, uh, I am a director of a, an organizational development department. It's a small team, more of a team than a department. There's four of us all together. And we help leaders recognize really the best their teams can be. And so we help them with communication skills. We help them with conflict management. We help them with uh, how to encourage others to act and uh, build others up. How do, you, how do you develop your talent on your team? That kind of thing. And so that's what I do every day at work, Monday through Friday, And then I have this podcast, Beyond the Rut, that's all about inspiring you to live your best life with purpose uh, and living unstuck in the areas of faith, family, fitness, finances, and future possibility, Woo! because I love alliteration. So this this gap between like 16 years old and being a 30-something, a lot of growth, a lot of learning who I am. I had to lean on my friends from high school and a really good friend of mine, Kathy Dannon from college. To learn about things like social cues, <laughs>
1: and uh,
0: you know, like you know, no, you don't really say this in front of people. No, you, you do say this, and you know, you know, you didn't wish that person a happy birthday. That that would have been a great time to do it. Why? Because it was his birthday. Oh, okay. But I, I knew it was his birthday. Everybody knew it was his birthday. Yeah, but it it feels good to say it. It, it helps the other person feel recognized and noticed. I'm like, oh, uh, so there was a lot of that. But also, again, that that line in the sand that I didn't want my children. To grow up in the same path as my extended family, I didn't want my grandchildren to know that world and and think that way and and not realize that they can have a life of significance and have impact on other people's lives in a positive way. I'm a big believer of uh, when things start to get dark, just turn on all the lights. You know, just turn them all on. You know, get all the truth out there on the table, and I, I've found that when you do that, everybody else gets brave enough to be open as well. And they start to turn on the light switches. So that, that kind of happened like, you know, back when I was 14 and my uncle's picking on me, flip on all the light switches. And my dad was able to see, this is what's going on. Uh, Even when he was attempting suicide when I was 11, you know, finally sharing with that sergeant, here are all the light switches turned on. I think any conflict I've ever been in, that's typically my first step, you know, whether it's an argument with my wife, a disagreement at work, uh, a negotiation over a contract that's going south. I just flip on all the lights like, hey, these are all my cards on the table. This is what I'm trying to achieve. This is how I'm trying to achieve it. These are my absolutes, the the things I will not compromise as far as values, as far as objectives. Can you get on board with that or or do we have to go separate ways? I guess that's the one thing that's been the theme throughout my life was despite like this conditional love thing that my mom had, I was never quite happy with myself, never quite felt loved. Uh, But I think once I realized this isn't about how I compare to others and it's not about how I'm viewed by other people, but really am I being true to myself? Am I living the purpose that I was created for? Am I living in appreciation of the value that God has in me? Even though God came into my life later, 27, 28 years old, Uh, so a lot of what I'm talking about now did come later in life. (laughs) Uh, you know, just knowing my value in God as opposed to my value from other people. And I I find when I live in alignment with that, with who I am in God, who I am uh, as a restored person in Jesus Christ, that all the things that don't seem to matter, like fall away as far as priorities go. Political arguments don't matter as much my social media arguments are irrelevant and just stupid to have in the first place. Uh, It's just, yeah, knowing who I am in God, I think that's first and foremost, the key thing that just helps me be centered, helps me be my best self. And uh, that's why, you know, beyond the rut talking about being unstuck, the very first out of the five areas of our lives, we went with faith. You know, if you're aligned with your higher purpose and your higher um, sovereign, everything else just falls into place. we We hope that even though our show isn't overtly Christian that we we hope that we help them at least reconnect there in in that respect. Uh, and then from there the the most important relationships they have are their family. So you know once you've aligned yourself back with God or with Jesus or it becomes a little bit easier to prioritize your family on my deathbed, let's say I get to live to an old age. And I'm in my deathbed. The one thing I'm not going to care about is gee, you know, I, my life would be so different if I had spent that extra two hours at the office every night to get those reports done. Because man, that would really have changed the world. Man, reports. Yep, that's what I should have done with my life. That's not what I'd be thinking. You know, I would be thinking, I want to see my kids, I want to see my wife. I want to see my grandchildren. If I have great-grandchildren, I want them here too. And I want to be able to tell them all I love them. And life's going to be okay. Keep going. Like, that's the kind of thing I wanted at the end of my life. And so, if that's what I want at the end of my life, what do I need to be doing now so that that's a reality in the future?
1: I'm wondering if people are interested in having a listen to the podcast or to being in touch with you, where's the best place for them to find you?
0: Uh, Best place is beyondtherut.com. And there you'll find uh, all our most recent episodes because we post them there. Uh, But if you have a podcast player that you rather prefer, like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, we're on those as well. We have those linked at beyondtherut.com. So uh, if you go there, you'll see in the sidebar, or if you're on your mobile phone, just scroll towards the bottom and we have the links directly to those platforms to help you get to that show. Uh, or you just go to your platform, type in Beyond the Rut and subscribe to us there. Uh, we put out an episode. When I say we, I mean myself, we just transitioned to just myself. I got to keep that in mind because uh, we've got six years, almost six years worth of content out there. So um, chances are we've covered a topic you're interested in. And i am not Just shoot us an email, uh, shoot me an email, info at beyondtheret.com and let us know what you'd like us to cover and I'll find somebody who can cover that
1: topic. Jerry, it's been so good talking to you. To hear the story of how difficult life was, but it's very different now and now you're helping others. I just want to say thank you for your time on Bleeding Daylight.
0: Thank you, Rodney. It was a blast to be on here and uh, I apologize for rambling.
1: (laughs) Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.